Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is what four decades of Christmases will do for you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So over the last three weeks, we started in verse 5 of Luke 1, and we've made our way all the way to this point where Jesus is born. And along the way, we've noticed that God has chosen to uh, announce this advent, this coming of the Savior in a pretty dramatic way, first through the Gabriel uh, event with uh, Zechariah, and then um, the Gabriel event with Mary herself. Luke doesn't give us any narrative account of how Joseph was informed of these things, but we can go find that in Matthew um, and see that an angel also appeared to him to assure him that everything was going to be okay. Um, so we, we had a dr- dramatic presentation and all of the experience that accompanies a presentation like that. Uh, it goes without saying that if you're going through your life expecting God to give you assurances of anything by the visitation of an angel just to you personally, um, you're probably going to be disappointed because these were not normative experiences. These were abnormal, extraordinary, miraculous experiences that these people had, um, which some would, you know, the, the naysayers, the skeptics would, would use that to argue against the gospel and what we believe. I would use it to argue for it. Uh, this is an incredible thing that God is doing and he, he announces it in an incredible way. And the nature of the annunciation uh, of the coming of the Messiah moves Mary in spite of the fact that she's in really humble circumstances and is about to be thought poorly of because she's not yet married and she's gonna show that she's pregnant Um, It it enables her to suffer the indignity that comes along with her carrying the Son of God with tremendous grace. She sings a song that I'm not sure I could have written on my best day as a child of God. And she sings it in the midst of, you know, possibly her entire community shaming her for what from all outward appearances is being pregnant out of wedlock. I've never pictured the Advent story as something quite as Norman Rockwelly as Americans traditionally do. I just, 
as I read the Bible and, and put myself in these people's shoes, I, it just doesn't seem like it's all that endearing. It seems like it would have been incredibly difficult, even up to this point right here where, uh, you know, Mary's had her visit with Elizabeth and she's had the confirmation of Elizabeth's blessing on her for being one who believes the baby leapt in Elizabeth's womb, which also confirms what Mary heard from the angel Gabriel. She's gone on home to, uh, to Nazareth, where she and Joseph are supposed to reside. And uh, then the government does what the government does and ruins everything, right? So the tyrant announces that there's going to be a census Caesar Augustus feels like the best way to make sure he's getting all his money from all of the people that he's a dictator over uh, would be to count them. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a convenient time for you to be counted. You go to your home city and you be counted. That's, that's where we're at. So Mary and Joseph make this, uh, it's around a 100-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, kind of 10, 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. And the time comes, the text says in verse 5, verse 6 rather, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then Luke adds the tidbit that there was no place for them at the inn. You could argue that this is a dramatic departure from Mary's experience up to this point. Or you could say, no, this lines up pretty well with the experience that she's had so far. I'll give you either perspective. I think it's dramatic departure. What would you have been thinking if you were Mary or Joseph? Gosh, it's your job if you're Joseph to look after this woman take care of her and now here we are in Bethlehem because that's where you came from and uh, the government's demanded that you come be registered for a tax stressful for a husband isn't it or a husband to be who has this responsibility and is accountable for the care of this woman who is now pregnant out to here Got to find some place for us to stay. There is no place for us to stay. So we'll hunker down in a stable. Here come the contractions. The miraculous encounter in verse 26 of chapter 1, where Gabriel shows up and shares the good news. You go from that to this. Now we're in a stable, giving birth in a cold, filthy place. Now, I'll happily be the only one up here. I'll stand up here all by myself and say this, and you can sit there and act like you would never think this, all right? I would start wondering, if I'm Mary or Joseph, where is God now? I knew where he was when the angel appeared. And spoke to me with an audible voice. 
but now I'm not so sure. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at deluding myself. Um, I tore apart the forerunner to put an alternator in it. And I was sure that I would remember how to put the new one on after I got the old one off. And it didn't take long before I got to the point where I'm like, are these even the same part? Right? It, I, and I, I can convince myself in a matter of seconds that I've ordered the wrong thing. I purchased the wrong thing. I could hold them up together. And just because this one's so much dirtier, be like, no, nah, I think this is different. How much more can you go from Gabriel showing up and telling you you're going to carry the Savior? The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and you're going to become pregnant with the God-man. How much easier would it be to go from that to nine months later in a stable, in circumstances which God most certainly has 100% control over, wondering, where is he now? And I think for all of us, to some degree, your own life as a Christian is the same exact thing. I used to try to like sharpen the edges of the gospel when I was sharing it with people, lost people. I would be like, well... Yeah, you, you got to have faith in Jesus Christ and then your life's going to suck. Because I didn't want to deceive them. And the inverse of that is if you come to Jesus, you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity and popularity. I've learned as I've gone along over the years, actually, you don't have to sharpen or soften the edges. But here was my experience. I came to Christ through, I believe, a miraculous encounter with God. It was just, it was months or years of, of little tidbits of the gospel filtering into my brain over time. And then finally, at the age of 17, as I was reading the scriptures, uh, he opened my eyes to understand w- what he meant when he said, Behold, how, how great a manner of love the Father has for the Son. Then he says, Things about us being called sons and daughters. And this whole idea of adoption uh, began to to bloom in my head where I stopped praying prayers of forgiveness to the judge and started praying prayers of forgiveness to my Father in heaven. And had a relationship with him that I hadn't had before through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now that was the initiation. It was like the light coming on and me finally comprehending something I should have gotten many years before. And then it was within a couple of years of that moment, I made bad decisions that led to some painful circumstances and got to this place where I thought, this is not what I thought being a Christian would feel like. And I am not acting like what I thought a Christian would act like. And there have been dozens of times in the last 25-ish years, I guess it's been, wait, I can't do math. It doesn't matter. There have been dozens of times since my profession of faith where I have wondered, where is God now? I think maybe the question asked within the hearts of Christians more than any other and consistently through history is, you'll you'll feel more free to agree with this than the previous thing, right? The question most frequently asked is, how is this good? Whatever I'm going through, 
the question that we tend to ask is, how is this good? Maybe you are a super saint and you're not willing to say, this is bad. But you're at least willing to go, yeah, how's this good? How's God getting glory from this that I'm going through? The last moments like this, I, I wish I ministered somewhere 2,000 miles away from where I do just so I could tell stories and people wouldn't have any idea who I'm talking about. The most profound grief I have ever seen in my entire life was that of a set of parents whose teenager had killed himself. I mean, it wasn't my kid. I can't begin to enter into that experience. I pray to God I never have to and that none of you have had to or ever do. But just observing the grief changed me. And it was interesting how some of the, some of the answers that I had for how is this good and where is God now were suddenly not really sufficient for the moment. I think we ask the question a lot, and I'm going to try to answer it in a few minutes, but, but let's ask this question first, because I think it might be way more helpful. Why did Jesus come? Like, what's the promise of the good news? What did he actually accomplish for us? Because a giant part of the reason that we struggle with doubts and fears as Christians is that we lose sight of, I think, two things. If you're a note taker, I'm going to try to get organized here. A giant part of the reason that we struggle with doubts and fears as a Christian, I think can be broken down to two things. We lose sight of why he came and we lose sight of who he came for. Why did he come? Who did he come for? So look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, verse 13. I'll give you a little bit of the framework. Jesus calls Matthew from the tax booth and then reclines at a house with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. In verse 13, he responds to a question from the Pharisees where they say, hey, why are you associating with these gross people. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you simplify that sentence a little bit, take out not the righteous, but, what you get is, I came to call sinners. Why did Jesus come? And who did he come for? In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus responds to James and John's mother when they come to, she comes to, to Jesus and says, hey, I've got a favor to ask you. 
And Jesus says, <clears throat> what do you want? And she says, I want my sons to sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom. This is good mom, right? Looking out for her kids. And Jesus basically tells her, you don't know what you're asking for. They're going to drink from the cup from which I drink, but it's not the cup you think. And whether they sit at my right hand and left is not for me to decide. And then he says in 28, Matthew 20, 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? Came to give his life as a ransom for many. In Mark 2, the Pharisees are grumbling again. Why are you associating with this people? In verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did Jesus come? Who did he come for? In Luke 4, 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why did he come? I came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the time of God's favor. In Luke uh, 19, the story of Zacchaeus, who was a little, you know, five foot seven, bald tax collector wanted to see Jesus and he couldn't so he climbed up a tree and uh, he gets up in the tree where he can see Jesus among the throng of people and Jesus lays eyes on him and says Zacchaeus come down from there for I'm coming to your house to stay and Zacchaeus comes up to Jesus and in a, in a maybe the best New Testament display of repentance that there is he says Lord if I've defrauded anybody, anything, I'm going to pay it back with interest. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him work that he might pay it back. Zacchaeus comes to faith, and Jesus says, The Son of Man, in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did he come? It's two tax collectors now that he's knocked down. In John 10, <clears throat> there's this, uh, one of the more difficult of the I am statements of Jesus to understand. He talks about being the door. I'm going to try not to get distracted. Anyway, 
in the midst of this whole, I am the good shepherd, I am the door uh, message that he preaches, he says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why did Jesus come? And who did he come for? He came for sinners, that they may have life and have it abundantly. In John 12, verse 36, it says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Oh, let me stop right there. The people that heard Jesus say that are now dead and gone. And whether they did what he instructed them to do, I don't know. But if I can just get you to pause in your mind for a second and, and consider this. However many sermons you've endured, how many, however many Bible studies you've listened to or taught or preached, I don't know. However you come in here, you need to think about this question, all right? Uh, do you believe that what I have told you so far about why Jesus came and who he came for, do you believe that what I've told you is even remotely true? And if you do, if you do believe that what I've told you about who Jesus is, why he came and who he came for is remotely true, I just want to warn you, it can't not have a dramatic impact on your life. It can't not. So you can't, yeah, uh, cool, Jesus is cool. I'll go to church a couple times a year. Like, it, that doesn't work. There's a whole package that comes with being saved from sin into life by the Son of God changes everything about you. Not all at once. I'm not one of those ding-dongs that's going to float up onto the stage and tell you that when I came to Jesus, I never swore again. But it has a dramatic impact on your life. So he says, while you have the light which is you right now, today, this moment. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Which is a scary thing to think about, but I'm going to be honest with you. There is a theme in Scripture that, that, that's woven throughout where people are given the opportunity while they have the light to believe in the light, while they have the gospel to take hold of it by faith, to while they are being introduced to Jesus, which is what's happening right now, to believe in him from the heart and so be changed. And they don't. And they don't. And they don't, and then eventually they can't. And the, all the times that they didn't, I imagine they were probably thinking, yeah, eventually. Maybe later on down the road. The one who came to give sight to the blind will not be ignored forever. And I don't know when you're going to have to do business with God. 
I don't know that it won't be before I'm done with this sermon. I don't know if you'll make it to Christmas. And that's not me trying, you're going to go to hell. You better hurry up and believe. That's me just being honest with you. I don't know how many more chances you're going to get if you haven't already. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they believed, but they didn't want to admit it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in he in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's why he came. That's why he came. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. That wasn't why he came at that point. I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The one that rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. I'm so sorry if you're here and you're outside of Christ that I, I don't know how to say this with tears in my eyes. I guess it's because my heart's too hard, right? But the reality is what I've just done to you is put the words into your mind by which you will be judged on judgment day. Where God will say, oh, you heard Oh, you got told. What did you do with my son? The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Why did Jesus come? Who did he come for? I came, this is what he just said, I came that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I came to save the world. In John 18, Pilate said to Jesus, this is after the kangaroo court with, uh, with the high priest. Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's Jesus. So here are the reasons he came. Call sinners, not the righteous. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. So if you're good to go, he didn't come for you. If you're a sinner in desperate need of mercy and grace, he came for you. Second, to proclaim good news to the poor. Look, we're all rich. Everybody in this room, what do I always say? You got a button in your house that changes the temperature. We're rich. Right? But if you're poor in spirit, broke down, wore out, troubled in heart, depressed, anxious, frustrated, 
full of fear, shame, and guilt. He came to proclaim the good news to you. To free the captives and the oppressed. Okay, Christians have been locked up, tortured, and killed for hundreds of years since the, since the ascension of Jesus Christ. So what are we talking about, captives and oppressed? We're talking about if you're here and you're somebody who is enslaved to your baser lusts and sin, if there's something that's got a hold of you that you you don't know how to get out of its grip, you don't know how to lay the thing down, you don't know how to stop something that's ruining your life, look, look, he came for you. He came for you. And you can go, no, why, why would he do that? This, look what I am. I'm disgusting. Look what I do. It's gross. And I don't know how to stop. And I'm telling you, he said he came for you. Oppressed, captive. He came to seek and save the lost. He's looking for you. You don't have to go find him. He's coming to find you. That's why he came, to bring us out of darkness into light and to give life where there is death. That's why he came, to save the world from sin and to testify the truth. So let's look again at Mary, right? And and the question we would have been asking if we'd been in her situation, how is God going to bring good from this and where is he now in this stable with no epidural, having just endured nine months of, I'm sure, some societal shaming. And Joseph, God bless him, he's there with her because he believed too. How's God going to bring good from this? Why, if you're going to send the Son of God, would you not do it through some adored uh, royal couple that everybody admires and do it in a way that all people will go, that's the way it ought to be done. Why would you do it this way? And I would just like to remind you that when life is not what you'd hoped and you feel the pressure of your circumstances, when life is not what you had hoped and you feel the pressure of your circumstances and you begin to doubt God's interest or God's affection or his mercy towards you, what you need to do is remember why he came. I know of two things which will cause me to doubt God's love for me. Number one would be my circumstances. Right? When the roof caves in. I I, I imagine if I've been a Christian for 40 years, the roof caves in, I'm still going to go, well, that's because God hates me. It's an instinct. It's a baser, stupid, fleshy thought, but I still have it. Something goes wrong. God hates me. The other one is my sin. I doubt the love of God because I find myself far too entertained and enjoying far too much things that he has told me plainly are evil. And I like them. And again and again and again, I either drift or headlong run into some evil that I know better than to do. And when life isn't what I thought or hoped it would be and things are hard and painful and confusing, are you like me? Do you sometimes suspect that God forgot his promises? Or do you like me sometimes go, no, I deserve this. When you stumble, drift or run headlong into sin, do you not lose your confidence in God's affection? 
What would you have thought if you were Mary or Joseph? All right, I'm doing this. I haven't done it in two and a half years. I'm doing it. Today's the day. It's Christmas Eve. When I resigned my position at my last church, I asked for two things. I said, we disagree fundamentally about some things I'm not going to try to change your mind about. So I'm going to go. I'm going to get out of the way and let you do what it is that you want to do. I'm going to go do something else. I'd like two things. Number one, I would like public affirmation of my gifts, calling, and qualifications because I have not done anything in this place to disqualify myself from ministry. Second, I asked for six months of severance so that Lisa and I would have an opportunity to get another job, get on our feet. I got neither. I got accused of a lot of things that I didn't do, but I got neither of the two things that I asked for. Now, I made the decision to resign in faith because I believed it was the right thing to do. But let me just tell you, by August 8th, 2021, we were in a stable. Asking, where is God now? I remember the moment we knew we'd been named enemies, falsely accused, and dismissed as pariahs. And it was by people that knew me, that knew that wasn't true. To this day, they would still say it. I wasn't in some flagrant sin. I hadn't done what I was accused of. And we had been told that we would be sent, we would be supported, we would be helped. That just didn't happen. The decree went out and we found ourselves in Bethlehem in a stable. And I had to remember how and why Jesus came. And thank God he came in a stable because that's where I live most of my life. If he'd come in a palace, I probably never would have met him. But he's right there in a stable with the, with the rest of us. With the cattle and the sheep, amen? Amen. He didn't come to give you an easy life. He didn't come to prosper your bank account. He didn't come to make you popular among powerful people. He didn't come to heal your strep throat. He came to seek and save the lost and to prove it, to prove it. Mary and Joseph weren't in a palace. To prove he came for the sick, they weren't in a palace. They weren't coronated, they were subjugated. Mary gave birth in a stable, and it probably wasn't even warm and charming the way we imagine it. It's probably cold and gross. We took Sam out for a college visit to Wayne. And just from the highway, the smell of those feedlots, my eyes were watering. It, they might have just sprayed like ammonia fertilizer or something. I don't know. It was awful. And I, I thought as we're driving, I'm like, man, how do these people, I need to harden up because these people just like live like this. And thank God they do because I love steak, right? <laughs> and I thought about what it was probably like in that stable. Like maybe thank God it was cold. 
But what a horrible experience. And you would struggle to believe that, that the love of God is still on you and with you and that this thing that's happening to you is part of his d- decree and his desire and his will because it doesn't look the way the human mind would conceive of such an honorable and beautiful and momentous history-changing moment. It looks like something is wrong. It looks like he messed up. And thank God it looked like that because my life is so often wrong and messed up. So I know Jesus is not somebody out of my reach. Like I can get to him. And he looks at me and he goes, I know exactly what this is like for you because I came and I lived it. That's why he came. And I'm who he came for. A sinner in desperate need of grace and mercy. So it's like to prove God's love isn't attached to your circumstances. His earthly parents' circumstances and experiences carefully accounted to us. And fascinatingly, there are people who think, and I wish he was in here, but he's not. So you tell him I said this when he gets back, Matt Matheson. There are people that think it's not important to talk about Christmas and celebrate it. It's the moment you know God loves his people and the love of God is felt so often in spite of, not because of, my circumstances. Because you know what happened to Mary and Joseph? I'm guessing it was about the moment they were like, we imagined all of the angel stuff. We imagined it. About that moment, here come these rough, scraggly, stinky outcasts of society, the shepherds. And they come and they tell Mary and Joseph this story. We're out in the field keeping our flocks and 20 minutes ago, angels showed up and said, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy for all man. For this night... A child is born unto you, the Son of God. Right when Mary probably needed it most, maybe not from the people that she got it from, but right when she needed it most, she got the encouragement that her heart so desperately desired. The circumstances didn't change, but her faith got enhanced. That's why he came. And he sends us shepherds in a similar way, doesn't he? And the other reason we struggle is remaining sin. Sometimes we still sin. It's not our circumstances, it's just us. You can put me in a dark room and I can do things by myself that will give me reasons to doubt the love of God. And I know I'm not the only one. Every passage that I've covered here this morning, in one way, shape, or form, pointed out who Jesus came to save. Who did he come to call? Sinners. Sinners to save. All right, let me pray and we'll, we'll light up our candles and sing Silent Night.